The text for this morning's sermon is Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Some of you will recognize the name Joshua Harris, and some of you may also be aware of the recent announcements of Joshua Harris's divorce and departure from Christianity. He posted these words on Instagram July 26 after announcing his divorce the week before. He wrote, the information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there are different ways to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Those are deeply disturbing words. All the more disturbing is that they come from what many Christians saw as a a model Christian. Joshua Harris is a product of the modern homeschooling movement. He wrote a best-selling book on sexual purity and dating in his early 20s. He became the pastor of a large church at age 30 and exercised wide gospel influence through books and conferences and messages for over a decade. And he affirmed much of the same theological values and principles and truths that you and I affirm. But the haunting thing in this, the question that comes to mind is if, if this can happen to him, can this happen to me? It's a sobering thing to think about and it leads to even more questions. What, what's the real foundation for my faith? What is my real, what is my actual connection to Christianity? What is my real relationship with God? my Creator. I think Hebrews 5 assists us in thinking about these questions. Where we read, For every high priest is chosen from among, or every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also, or as he says also in another place, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest 
after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we come to Your Word this morning knowing that it is perfect, that it revives the soul, that it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. We ask now that the effect of these words would have the reviving effect that you mean them to have on us as we look to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Spirit inspired the author of of Hebrews to write this letter to these early Christians in order to encourage them in the midst of difficulty, but also to admonish them in the face of temptation to walk away. So he's encouraging them and he's admonishing them. In order to do this, he presents to them Jesus and all of his majestic glory. He's concerned that these believers might be tempted to fall back into their old ways. And in their case, for them, this would be uh, their former religion, Judaism. And in in these verses, specifically 1 through 10 of chapter 5, the author presents Jesus' majestic glory by comparing the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, which is associated with Aaron, and the Melchizedekian priesthood, or you could say eternal priesthood of the New Covenant, which is connected to Jesus. And, and, and there's, these two categories are how we're going to look at this, this text this morning. We're going to start by focusing, looking at the Levitical priesthood. And as we look at verse 1, we see that we get, we get a description of what a priest is. A priest is someone who's chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men. So, so a, a priest is a man, but not just any man. It's, it's a chosen man, and he's appointed to do something. He's appointed to act on behalf of others. He's appointed to represent others. So we have a human representative here, and he's to function in in, in this capacity. He's to function in relation to God. The, the, The background to the Levitical priesthood starts in Exodus chapter 28, all the way back in the Old Testament. The, the, the Levitical priesthood, which started in Aaron, was established at Mount Sinai. So after God rescued his people miraculously from Egypt, took them through the Red Sea and brought them to Mount Sinai, uh, we read beginning in chapter 19 that he begins to speak to them. He gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then through chapter 24, he gives them the law that, that's going to govern them as a people underneath his lordship. But then in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, he lays out detailed instructions for this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be the thing that they camp around. It's going to be in the center of their camp and it's going to be the place, it's going to be the center of their worship. It's going to be the place where God comes and dwells in their midst. And in these detailed instructions about how to, how to build this tabernacle, In chapter 28 of Exodus, God gives instructions for the priests that are going to serve. 
in this tabernacle. God chooses a particular family of the tribe of Levi. It wasn't all the Levites. It was a particular family. He, he, he starts with Aaron, who happens to be the brother of Moses. And he chooses Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. And, and so while you have priest-like activities happening before this in the Bible, if you read through Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, you have people offering sacrifices like a, like a priest would do. You have the priesthood of the Old Testament beginning to be established in Exodus chapter 28. And of course, the book that comes after Exodus, Leviticus, uh, is a whole book of the Bible with further instructions with how the priests should, should carry out their uh, Levitical priesthood duties. So, so the priests are representatives for the people of, of Israel. They're, they're temporary mediators. God says of, of Aaron and his sons in Exodus chapter 40 that they're to be a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So Aaron would serve as priests until he died. And then his sons would serve as priests until they died, followed by their sons until they died. And as priests, they were to relate to God on behalf of the people. They, they were to be a kind of mediator between God and his people. So, so there's an authority structure here. You have God who's functioning as the, the authority, and then you have this, these people who are the subordinates. And then there's only so many ways to or, organize a, a relationship like this. And for reasons you can probably imagine, and that will become clear as we continue to look at this text, God, God doesn't relate to his people on a one-to-one basis. When it, when it comes to God's kingdom, it's, it's not like the United States where uh, you're born here and you're just immediately granted the benefits of, of citizenship uh, if you're born here. We, we are not born into God's kingdom as, as citizens. We come into God's kingdom as, as strangers and foreigners and aliens. Uh, a foreigner doesn't get immediate access to the king. And instead, some chosen person goes and resent, represents you before the king. And, and in this context, the, the priest, that's the role of the priest. It's to relate to God for you on your behalf. And the main thing that he, he does, uh, his whole work is, is consumed uh, with the reality of sin. He exists because sin exists. We see this at the end of verse 1. He's appointed on behalf of men in relationship or in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Or if you look at verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So the priest offers offers sacrifices for the sins of the people. They're, they're, they're not born as citizens of his kingdom. They're born as citizens and this is still true of us today. We're born as citizens of a sinful race of human beings. And, and the problem is sin has no place in God's kingdom. So if he's setting up a kingdom here, uh, the gigantic elephant in the room is the sin of a people that can have no place in his kingdom. And if, if these people are going to be in God's presence, remember, he's going to dwell with them in the tabernacle, something needs to be done about their sins. Something needs to be done about their uncleanness before this holy God. And that's, that's what the whole book of, our book of Leviticus is about in the Old Testament. In, in Leviticus chapter 10, God charges the priests of the Old Testament that, that you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the, the unclean and the clean. 
So, so the priest functions in this middle space, uh, this middle space between the holy space and the common space. The holy space represented divinity. It represented God's presence. And, and, and the common space resem- represented human sinfulness. And, and if you think about it, this, this place in the middle, this is a dangerous place to stand where the, where the priests functioned. Right. For, for, the un, for the common to go into the presence of the holy was to risk death. But th- this is why the, this is the whole reason the priesthood exists, to mediate these two spaces, to make this thing possible for God to be present with his people. So you have these priests who function as these representatives. They, they represent God to his people, so they go in this direction from the holy to the common. Uh, they, they represent God by, uh, by, they camp the closest to the tent. They're the only ones who are allowed to actually go in the tabernacle. Uh, they wear these special holy clothes that set them apart from the rest of the people. So there's a sense in which they represent God to the people, but then they function the other way as well. They, fun- they represent the people to God as well. Uh, the high priest, we were going to go back to Exodus chapter 28, most of that chapter details these, these clothes that they were to wear. And one of the pieces of clothing they were to make for the high priest, so for Aaron initially, is that he was to have this breast piece that he would wear on his chest. And that breast piece uh, was to have 12 precious stones engraved on it. And these, uh, or in the, what was engraved on them was the 12 tribes of Israel. So we read in Exodus 28, 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So the priest goes to God carrying the burden of sins, the sins of the people on his heart. That's kind of the picture we have. So sin is the big problem here. All this, all this is taking place because of sin. Sin separates you from God. It creates these two different spaces that we operate in. And then sin ultimately brings death because at some point when, when, when this space comes into this space, the, the result is, is death because of God's holiness. In our sinful state, we cannot be near to God. In the, in the presence of majestic purity... Our, our uncleanness is lewd and vile and vulgar before God. Uh, you have done things and thought things and said things that offend the God who created you. And those things ultimately bring us death. Sin is the, is, is the explanation for why we die. Sin is the explanation for why there is a date on the calendar in your lifetime where your heart will stop beating. And the priesthood was a temporary solution to this. Rather than die instantly when they came into God's presence, they could experience the benefits and the glory of being in God's presence through the work of the priest and and because of of the blood and the death of animals that died instead of the people. These gifts and sacrifices that were the main content of the priest's work. So, So it was a good thing. It was a good thing to have a good priest. It was a gracious thing that God provided in the Levitical priesthood. 
And it was important that the priests were human beings. Even just think about what it means to represent human beings. Uh, an, an angel couldn't have done this. An angel would not have been an adequate priest because uh, an, an angel couldn't represent human beings in the way uh, a human could. So human priests had to be human in, in order to represent sinful human beings. But a human priest is also preferable, too. If you look at verse 2, a human priest is preferable because he knows what it's like to be a sinful human being. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So although the priest is chosen from among men, he's still a sinful man like the rest of like the rest of the, the people. Literally, it's he's, he's surrounded by weakness. Weakness clings to him just as it does the other people. But this is good for you because this is, this is uh, the, the priest can identify with you. He, he's not distant from you. He, he understands your situation because your situation is also his situation. So he can be compassionate towards you. He can deal gently with you when you come to God for forgiveness. God's holiness is, is absolutely pure. It's, it's white hot. There is no room for nuance or variation in God's judgment when it comes to your sin. It is swift and decisive. But God provides priests in the Old Testament who are able to deal gently and empathize with sinful people in their, in their weakness. And the priest himself is beset with weakness, which is why we see in verse 3 that he's, offer, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he is the sins of the people. This came up a few weeks ago looking at uh, the verses that came before this and the Day of Atonement. He, he first has to go and sacrifice the bull for his, his own sins and the sins of his family before he can go and sacrifice the goat on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. So the Old Testament priests, like Aaron, were human in order to represent humans. And they were also sinful humans, weak like the people, but thus they were able to deal gently with the people, with wayward and ignorant sinners who came to God for, for forgiveness. We also see, importantly here, that, that the priests were chosen by God. They weren't chosen based on popularity uh, there was no election that was held. Uh, we see in verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just like Aaron was. Uh, it was an honor to serve as, as a priest. This was an honorable position. It was a, it was a calling from God. Uh, th- this was not an honor you could attain by exalting yourself to the position. Uh, a certain degree of humility was necessary. The, the, the priest wasn't chosen based on his own merits. He's beset with weakness just like the rest of the people. Uh, and, and he also required humility because uh, the priest had to be willing to obediently follow some of God's specific instructions. Uh, and we see that the peop- when the people failed to recognize this, there was terrible consequences. So you might be familiar with the story of Nadab and Abihu, uh, in the book of Leviticus. And the only narrative found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu offer unauthorized incense before the Lord in a way that uh, we read to be in a fairly high-handed, rebellious way, and, and God's judgment is immediate and swift. They're, they're consumed with fire. They were unwilling to follow God's instructions and insisted on doing things their own way. Certain degree of humility was was necessary. 
on their part. Uh, a certain degree of humility is necessary also because uh, you had to be chosen for this position. If you, if you elevated yourself to this position, things didn't go well. There's another story in the book of Numbers. Uh, if you're familiar with Korah and his, uh, what's called Korah and his rebellion, Korah was also from the tribe of Levi, just like Aaron was, but he didn't think it was right that Moses and Aaron were elevated to these special positions. And in the narrative, it's clear that his intention was to appoint himself to the priesthood. But the story has this famous ending in Numbers 16 where where God recognizes who he has chosen and who he has not chosen, and the ground opens up and swallows Korah and all of his followers. So to serve among the priesthood, it was, it was not an honor you could just take for yourself. Uh, it was something you attained only because God appointed you to it. Uh, and this, this was just consistent with, with the other offices in, in the Old Testament, whether it was uh, priests, whether it was kings, or it was prophets. Uh, you did not want to be in any one of those positions unless God had specifically appointed you to those positions. But this leads us to the other high priest mentioned in this, this passage. Uh, the high priest, uh, who isn't a priesthood like Aaron, or was, wasn't inducted to a high priesthood like Aaron, Levitical priesthood, Jesus Christ is of a different order of priesthood. Something we call the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is fun to say. Who's, who's Melchizedek? If you don't know who Melchizedek, he is someone who when you hear his name, your heart should warm. And let me tell you why. Uh, like Aaron, we see in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed. So Jesus didn't demand this position as high priest. He didn't just assume this position. Uh, he waited for direction from his heavenly father when it came to his role as high priest. Uh, the author of Hebrews grounds Jesus' status high priest in the Old Testament scriptures. So we see this in verses 5 and 6 where, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Very interesting choices. If you look at verse 5, what makes Psalm 2 such an interesting choice is that uh, Psalm 2 has, uh, doesn't mention the priesthood. Psalm 2 is a, rather, it's about the king. It's about the Davidic king. It's, it's, it's a royal psalm. It's a psalm about the glory of the Davidic king and the danger for uh, foreign kings who would oppose the Davidic king, God's chosen king. And in it, God claims the Davidic king as his own son. And this is what's this is what you see in verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the author of Hebrews uses this royal Old Testament psalm as a basis for Jesus' designation as a, as a high priest. This is different from Levi. Or sorry, this is different from Aaron, who's, who's of the priesthood of, of Levi. Keep that in mind as you look at verse 6, where the, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 has some similarities with, with Psalm 2. Psalm 110 is a, is a psalm that the author of Hebrews is going to bring up again uh, a couple more times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we read here that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So once again, the author of Hebrews is using this, this passage of the Old Testament as a basis for designated Jesus as a high priest. But, but how are these connected? What's, what's the relevance here? Uh, Psalm 
Psalm 110 recognizes the priesthood, but it's, it's a different kind of priesthood. Uh, every, every priest in the Old Testament had to be of the tribe of Levi. Uh, we saw with, with Korah, not even just the tribe of Levi, they had to be a descendant of Aaron. That's who God chose to be, to be priests. But even in the Old Testament, here in Psalm 110, we have another order of priesthood that, that's recognized here. The order of Melchizedek. You remember who Melchizedek is? Melchizedek, he dates back way further, way before the Levitical priesthood is established, back in Genesis in the time of, of Abraham. And, and the author of Hebrews, has, he says in verse 11, he has much more to say about Melchizedek, which will come up in, in chapter 7. But just recognize for now that Melchizedek is, is a peculiar figure in the Old Testament because he, he appears almost as quickly as he disappears. But what we're told in Genesis 14 is that Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem which is probably Jerusalem. So we have Melchizedek, the king of Salem, probably a thousand years before David is king in Jerusalem. But that's not all. Melchizedek is also described as priest of God most high. So Melchizedek is this peculiar figure with a unique combination of roles. Typically, these roles are are kept separate. You have prophets, they do their thing speaking for God. You have kings, they do their thing ruling underneath God's authority. And then you have priests who are mediating God's presence to the people. There's the three main roles in the Old Testament for, for God's people. But here we have two of those roles meshed together. Melchizedek was a king... And he's also a priest. And a thousand years after he's mentioned, in Genesis chapter 14, King David prophesies in Psalm 110 that God has promised a messianic figure to come who in the future will be of the same order as Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is claiming this figure is Jesus Christ. Jesus' high priesthood is not based on genealogy or ancestry. He, he's not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus, Jesus his, his genealogy is very carefully traced back to uh, the, the tribe of Judah in the New Testament. That's, that's how he can be the Davidic king. Jesus, uh, what, what, the, what the author's doing here by quoting Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, he's tying together kingship and priesthood for Jesus. This is a different kind of priesthood than Aaron. So, so we have important continuity between Jesus and Aaron. They're, they're both priests, but then there's this discontinuity as well. There's these two different priesthood. And, and this continues to come out as we look at verses 7 through 9. For, first, we saw that, that Aaron offered gifts and sacrifices to God for his own sins and the sins of the people and his role as a priest. But look what it says Jesus offered in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So what does Jesus offer here? We're reminded that Jesus is completely human, right? This took place, it says, in the days of his, in the days of his flesh. And we see that Jesus was completely dependent upon God, evidenced by his prayers. Uh, we read... Uh, when we read that his prayer, oh, he, he made these prayers with loud cries and tears and immediately takes us to the scenes from the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is, is considering his, in, his impending crucifixion. 
And what characterized Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane is what, what characterized his entire life. His entire life, every day, when things were difficult, he went to God. He laid his problems before God. He looked to God for permission, for provision, and he was heard by God. Why was he heard? This is a place where we have some important discontinuity with the Old Testament priests. Uh, what made God willing to hear the prayers of the Old Testament priests was the sacrifices that they made for sins. But Jesus doesn't have any sin. He has no sin. So God hears Jesus' prayers purely on the basis of his, his reverence. There's no sin that stands in the way of, of Jesus' relationship with God the Father. So, there, so we have similarity and difference here. Jesus is praying and offering like the priests of the Old Testament, but he has no need to offer sacrifices for his sins. And Jesus' prayers are heard purely for what they are, reverent petitions, reverent supplications and prayers to God. And you might be thinking, if if God heard Jesus' prayers, uh, how is it that he still died? Is there conflict there? Just helpful helpful to recognize, God did answer Jesus' prayer, even his prayers in the garden to be delivered from death, because although he died, he was delivered from death when he rose from the dead three days later. We get clarity about this in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So this is this recognition that Jesus suffered in his ministry as part of his ministry on earth. He, he suffered throughout his life. He suffered particularly and especially, though, in between Gethsemane and the tomb, climaxing, of course, on, on the cross. God did deliver him from death, but God did not spare him from suffering. He learned obedience through Suffering. Now, maybe your, your theological alarm bells go off when you read that Jesus uh, learned obedience. Or even at the beginning of not, uh, verse, or verse 9, we see that he was made perfect. How can a God who, how can Jesus, who's God, who knows all things, learn obedience? Or how can uh, Jesus, who's already perfect, be made perfect? Well, we, we've established that in, in relation, at least in relation to God, someone must be human in order to represent humans. They, ha- they have to be human if they're going to represent humans as, as a high priest. We see in verse 1, a priest is a man who acts on behalf of men in relation to God. Uh, but by becoming a human being, uh, Jesus solves the problem of, of, of being human. Uh, God takes on human flesh through the incarnation. He becomes a human being, so therefore he can represent human beings. So that we have it taken care of, at least from God's perspective to human beings. But how about going the other way? Uh, how about representing God, or representing us in relation, or sorry, it, it's, it's, I got it wrong. He, he's, he's, he relates to, as a human being, to God. We have it going right this direction, but how about the other direction? How does he relate as God to human beings? We know that Jesus is divine. The author of Hebrews has gone out of his way to to point out that Jesus is divine right off the bat in Hebrews 1. Uh, Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom God created the world. Uh, He's the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, Jesus' divine nature is what makes his blood infinitely valuable in order to satisfy God's wrath. 
But, but it's, it's his human nature that the author of Hebrews is emphasizing here, not his divine nature. He is a man that receives the punishment for men. So he must identify with us. Uh, there's, this, this, there's a sense in which Jesus is, is perfect. He has this divine nature. He's God. He lacks no, or he lacks no perfection. But, but in order to be a human high priest who ministers to sinful humans, he had to endure human experience. How can he represent God to us in a way that the Levitical priests represented God to the people of Israel? He's, he's perfect. So he's, he's not beset with weakness like, like Aaron was. This is how he's majestically perfect. He learns obedience through suffering. And this is, this is the, the key to the amazing reality of who Jesus is, in, at least in terms of his high priesthood. And we, we often miss this. This, is, this. this has a giant impact on the Christian life and how you view Jesus, even in your daily life. Uh, many Christians struggle with this. Uh, we know that according to Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, that he's, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the ruler who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after finishing his work on earth. But what does he do now that he sits there? After completing his ministry on earth, dying, rising again, ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, what's he do right now? How do you picture Jesus as you go about your daily life? What's he doing up there? You picture him as counting sins. There's one. There's one. There's another one. Another one. There's that one again. You picture him just waiting for you to screw up so he can deal with you again. Maybe even worse, maybe you, maybe you see him plotting difficulty for your life. That's already hard. Well, of course this would be as hard as I can imagine it. Maybe you picture him as keeping score between you and, and other people to see who's going to win the most of his affection. Or maybe you just think of him as unconcerned, that he's, he's up there basically enjoying the benefits of his, his labors. Uh, it, it's true that Jesus is enthroned and exalted. But as we see in verse 10, he has been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's sitting at God's right hand as your perfect high priest. That is his function right now. So what, what does this look like? What does this look like? Why is this good news? How, how, why would this, how would this affect me day to day? We, we get a picture, we get a little hint of what this looks like in John 17 in a prayer that Jesus prays uh, on the night that he's betrayed. Uh, this is often called in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a, good, it's a good name for it. We get a hint of what it looks like, of what Jesus is, is doing. As Jesus is on the brink of beginning his service as, as a high priest, look at what his heart is already towards you. Just consider what he says in John 17, for example, in verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
So he's praying for you. Or look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's asking God to keep you. He's asking God to unify you with his people. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's asking God to protect you from Satan, the evil one. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth. In the truth, your word is truth. He's asking God to make you holy and set you apart by the power of his word. Unless you think that he's he's doing this work just for the people he was in the presence of on the night he was betrayed, uh, look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's concerned for you. This is what his high priesthood looks like. As he's enthroned and exalted, this is what he's doing for you right now if you're in Christ. His main attitude is not about counting your sins. He's not waiting for you to screw up. He's not some heartless parent or coach who's, who's withholding affection and affirmation from you until you measure up or do enough or outperform or out-spiritualize those around you. He's not only your enthroned king, but he's your enthroned priest. He's ruling in a way that deals gently with our our weakness and our ignorance. And the reason he can do this is because he understands our weakness. He learned obedience through suffering. Consider just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. just like Aaron, but much more than Aaron. He, he understands our weakness. Now, does this mean we should take sin lightly? Does this mean we should be just careless and nonchalant about sin? Well, of, of course not. Sin separates you from God. Sin has earned you eternal damnation. Your, your sin is what places you in need of someone to mediate your relationship with God. Your, your sin is what Jesus had to suffer in anguish for on the cross. Let's make war on every ounce of evil that we find lurking in our flesh. But at the same time, let's take comfort in the fact that as we seek to leave sin behind us and persevere in our faith, clinging to our hope in Christ, He is going to God the Father on your behalf. That is His disposition. That is His current vocation for you. He is for you. And just as Aaron wore the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on precious stones over his heart when he went into the Holy of Holies, it's as if Jesus enters God's presence with your name engraved on His heart and and represents you before God and prays for you and your needs I don't, I don't know, how do you think about Jesus on a day-to-day basis? How do you think about the Jesus who's now exalted in heaven, who's ascended into heaven? 
I, I do need to know that you need to consider this as you think about Jesus. He was sinless. He is God. He is ascended to God's right hand. But that doesn't mean he does not, like Aaron in verse 2, deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He does this in a way that far exceeds what the Levitical priests ever could do. Maybe you're a typical Christian. You're seeking to live for God's glory. You're seeking to trust Him through difficulties that come up in your life. Uh, You're repenting of sin as it comes to light in your life. Uh, Make this, make these verses a key component of how you understand God and your Savior. Let this inform you as you do what we're encouraged to do just a few verses early, earlier in chapter 4. Let this inform how you hold fast to your confession in Christ. Make this a part of your confession in Christ, that He is your great high priest. Let this encourage you to, with confidence, this is again in, at the end of chapter 4, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus' work, continual work in heaven for you. Maybe you're a wayward Christian this morning. Maybe you've been led away by a combination of the world and your own sinful desires. Maybe you're wondering if Jesus has really has compassion for someone who has wandered. Good news, Christian. He is not only Lord, although He is Lord. He is your heavenly, perfect, high priest. He is for you. If you're in Christ, turn around. Turn away from sin and death and find Christ and He will never leave you or forsake you. He is already making effort for that exact occasion to take place in your life. But, but what if you're not a Christian? What, what if Christ is not your high priest? What if all these benefits aren't yours? Well, there's good news for you too if you look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you're not a Christian this morning, the the message of Christianity to you is is that you have a problem. And your problem is sin. You, You have offended the God of the universe by suppressing his truth in your own unrighteousness. You have loved and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And apart from righteousness that has to, going to have to come outside yourself, you will be judged and pay the punishment for your sins in hell for eternity. You have a problem. But in this text, we see that God has provided a wonderful Solution. God has sent His Son who lived a perfect life, completely dependent upon God in everything, whose prayers were heard purely on the basis of their reverence, who also suffered for you, who took the punishment for God's of who took the punishment of God's wrath for sin on the cross and then rose from the dead. We see that God was able to save him from death, and he rose from the dead. And and, and in that, through that becoming a perfect high priest, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all, to all who obey him. 
It's important just to recognize here, your obedience is not what makes you acceptable before God. Faith alone in Christ is what makes you acceptable before God. Faith and obedience are distinguishable in the Christian life, but they're inseparable in the Christian life. Faith is the basis, is the basis of your salvation. Uh, faith is the thing that it takes for God to count you as, as righteous. righteous. And, but, but obedience is what comes from genuine faith. So if you claim to be a Christian on the basis of your obedience, uh, you're failing to recognize that Jesus is the source of your salvation. So that's, that's a problem. That's, that's not Christianity if, if, the, if obedience is, is the basis. But at the same time, if you claim to have faith but fail to demonstrate obedience, it also demonstrates that you don't have real faith. Both, neither of those things are Christianity. Christians are those who trust in Christ alone for salvation with a faith and a trusting that take the form of of obedience and following him. If you're not a Christian, it's my prayer that you will turn away from your sin and that you'll turn to this Melchizedekian priest. He's the priest king, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'll trust in his work and not in your own works. And I pray that you'll spend the rest of your life following him. It's surprising to have this Melchizedek figure Introduced here, uh, the author has more to say about him in chapter 7. encourage you to read ahead in chapter 7. But, but as we reflect on what we need, uh, it's glorious and wonderful that Melchizedek is introduced here. We, we need a good king who rules forever, and we need a good priest who connects us with God forever. Jesus, just like mysterious Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, is both king and priest of God Most High, and he is priest forever. It's devastating to hear about people who claim to be Christians but walk away from Christ. It's especially devastating when those people are pastors or have been pastors. It's hard to know what to think when we hear stories like that. But on the basis of this text, here is one thing you should think. If you are in Christ, you can take immense comfort. Jesus has paid the price for your sins, provided the righteousness you need to be accepted before God, and risen from the dead, defeating death. But that's not all. He now sits at God's right hand, serving as high priest. And as your perfect high priest... You can bet his prayers will be answered. You can be assured his prayers will be answered. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Sanctify them. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to know that even as we pray, even as we come to you seeking help from you, guidance from you, grace from you, Christ, our high priest, prays for us also. He is for us. He knows that we are weak and he 
knows exactly what that weakness is like. He deals gently with us in our weakness and ignorance and in our waywardness. And Father, His prayer is our prayer. Keep us. Sanctify us in the power of Your Word. Keep us from the evil one. Help us cling to You. Help us draw near to You with confidence on the basis of Jesus' work. Even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering, like Christ, would You hear our prayers. For those of us who are wayward, break the power of sin and help us turn away from the worthless things that separate us from you. We take great comfort in the fact that before your throne above, we have a high priest who ministers in the name of love for us and for our salvation. Thank you, Father, for our great high priest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.